You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and we're here with actually what is our November General Club podcast. And I'm joined by Ben Simon again, but also by Stephanie Barwick, another friend of Simulcast, who's going to shed some light on chat and other things for us. Uh, but first of all, how are you, Ben? Mate, I am good, and I'm excited to be spending this uh, Perry Christmas time with both of you. Excellent. Me too. And Steph Barwick, for those of you who haven't heard her on Simulcast before or read anything or read her tweets, uh, she works at Martyr Education, and you'll have to tell me your official title there, Steph, but uh, nurse by initial training, um, but now leads a lot of their simulation activity and also doing a PhD in uh, looking at healthcare consumer engagement with insight simulation. How are you, Steph? Good. Thanks, Vic. Very excited to be spending my Thursday night with you and Ben. Yes, and now we should actually get your formal title, Director of? Clinical Education. Excellent. Well, we'd like to have you along. So, uh, Simulcast listeners, as we've done previously, we're going to recap on the main paper, which Ben uh, is going to lead us through, and then I've got a couple of recent publications that I thought we might talk about relating to self-efficacy and also to psychological safety. So it's going to be a little bit of a kind of theory thread through the session, but with lots of practical application, Ben. So why don't you tell us about making the invisible visible? Absolutely. So that's the name of the paper. And the subtitle is A Place for Utilising Activity Theory Within Insight to Simulation to Drive Healthcare Organisational Development. And it was published recently in Advances in Simulation uh, by uh, Jared Gormley et al. So look, the article introduces us to cultural historical activity theory, which nicely acronyms down to CHAT. Uh, which the authors argue provides us with analytical tools to recognize and analyze complex healthcare systems. And the text state that chat can help facilitate development of system level changes by making visible the key elements of a community interaction, such as that which occurs in an in-situ simulation. And the paper argues that while in situ or translational simulation is being used in healthcare settings to translate research and collect data on latent safety threats, that there remains a disproportionate focus on individual performance and skills development at a micro level. And this actually makes me think back to last month, Vic, when you took us through uh, Andrew Petrosoniak's recent paper on just how poorly insight participants identified actual latent safety threats compared to trained systems analyzers. And I think it is a risk that we run into with insight you is boasting about how well we're picking up all these quality and safety mechanisms, even though as human participants, we're not potentially doing it as well as we think. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. And it really just underlines how everybody involved in this activity really needs to be having a shared purpose. And often I agree in insight simulation, we've kind of got this mixture of stuff. Are we really thinking about our context? Are we thinking about our learning? Are we thinking about our quality improvement or identifying latent safety threats? And whatever we think it is, it needs to be shared by the people who are participating or else we're probably not going to achieve it. Fair point. So the authors argue that chat offers a particularly useful analytical approach for challenging and expanding this sort of predominant 
individual skill-focused view that we've fallen into because it puts its focus on making visible the key elements of an organizational activity and the complex interrelationships and the tensions between them, hence the title, Making the Invisible Visible. So in other words, sometimes the ways we connect and interact in a community have complex hidden or unseen drivers. And so by making the invisible visible, potentially organizations can get better at healthcare improvement at that macro level. So what is chat theory, you ask? Well, buckle in, kids, because I'm going to try and do this justice. And I'm going to own my intellectual candor here and say I could be getting this wrong. So apologies uh, to Mr. Gormley. And I'm going to have some faith that uh, Vic and Steph can maybe keep me on the straight and narrow. So when considering a community or team, chat breaks down uh, the people and their motivations into a subject or group of subjects, an object, mediating artifacts, rules, a community, and the division of labor. And these are all sort of visually represented on a big uh, triangle with lots of subpoints on it. So from the article, what I gather is that if we try and define these different elements, the subject for us might be something like individual healthcare workers, but they in turn are part of a larger healthcare community. The object is a shared objective, outcome or individual, which in our system would often be a patient. Uh, then we have mediating artifacts. So they're items through which the subject, i.e. the healthcare worker, and the object, i.e. the patient, can engage and interact. So, for example, a resuscitation team, if they're the subject, might interact with the object, say a heart attack patient, via the mediating artifact of a defibrillator or PPE. How am I going so far, guys? Oh, that's impressive. Very impressive. You really make it beautifully clear. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. So the rules that provide boundaries for the way we engage with each other, for example, BLS guidelines and hospital policies is an example from the text. Yeah. So the rules that guide us as in the ways we interact. And then there's the community. And what they really highlight in this theory is that this doesn't just include the central members of that community, but also sometimes the more peripheral members who might contribute to that community in initially unrecognized way. So whether it be the immediate resuscitation team or the administrative staff who support clerking the patient during a met call to the cafe worker who waves the emergency teams to the right location. Yeah, and it validates the importance of making all of those elements clear to the team so that we can more accurately break down how we interact and where our shared sense of purpose is. And then finally, they divide that into the division of labor. So how do those within that community subdivide the labor required to meet the needs of the objective? So that's what I took away as the basic sort of framework speed that I'm sure I'm missing a lot of nuance. Steph, did you have anything to add there? Uh, I I think you've done a really great job, Ben, in um, trying to distill that into examples and language that we understand, well, people like me understand. <laughs> um, I, from my perspective, uh, I've certainly not been someone who's really been a big fan of theories historically, but considering I've uh, taken this dive into a PhD, I've had to learn a little bit about them. But um, the way the authors attempt, I thought, to explain chat in here and provide um, 
the case vignettes and examples and how you've explained it I think is really helpful Um, and hopefully between you Vic and I will be able to dive a little bit deeper into it. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a nice uh, explanation. And I suppose even inherent in that is why are we even doing this? Why are we trying to create this, what might feel like a contrived triangle? But I think, uh, and I'm not sure if they say this as explicitly, but they certainly allude to it in the article, that this is an attempt to capture complexity. Uh, instead of pretending that what we do in simulation, education, or in other contexts, we just have a singular goal and everyone converges around that. I think what it recognises is that there's multiple players with multiple perspectives, using multiple tools, working within multiple constraints, and hopefully this captures some of that complexity. So I think to that extent, I'm glad they've done it. A bit like you, I feel like it's a big stretch for most of us to really go into this. And I think just uh, by way of background for this, group at uh, Queen's University in Belfast, they really are doing a great job of trying to pull us along on this journey of understanding how theory can be really practical and actually help us do our work better. What what I do like about it is that it, it does help, well, it helped me, uh, but I think it helps us more broadly think about the interconnectedness um, of uh, networks and, um, you know, objects within these activities that we run and that's particularly helpful when we are trying to improve processes and systems in a complex setting like healthcare. And I feel sometimes, Steph, like this, I'm still trying to get this, but it sort of just slips from my grasp. And I was wondering, would you be able to give us like a concrete example of how that's been useful to you? You you know, just a patient interaction, I guess, in the intensive care unit, for example. Patient, patient symptoms influence medical team's decisions, equipment or objects um, influence uh, what we do and how we treat the patients um, and in turn, uh, you know, what, what happens to them, I guess. And I think that that's just generally helpful to think more broader about why people do the things they do, particularly in simulation, but also in clinical practice. So thinking about um, that idea of how humans think and how humans act and what influences that. I think that's an example when I read this that I started reflecting on in my own clinical practice. Yes, and that would be reflective also in the Wikipedia entry about cultural historical activity theory, and which I thought was really nice. And if you just read the first line of that, it says that cultural historical activity theory is a theoretical framework which helps to understand and analyse the relationship between the human mind, what people think and feel, and activity, what they do. And if you think about it, that actually is a lot of what we're trying to do in debriefing, as another word for that is frames, and not just focus on the behaviourist approach to things, which is that's good, do more of it, uh, that's bad, do less of it, but rather help me understand about why you did what you did and what that means for other behaviour sets that are well beyond the ones that we've observed here. To add to that, Vic, sorry, what also in the in the system influenced what you did yeah absolutely and hence captures that complexity as we were talking about uh one of the things i liked about this ben was that the um example they gave was from general practice and they made a little bit of a point about that which i think is quite good because so many of these things are written about the kind of environments that most of us on the chat here tonight share which is the sort of critical care one but i think it just illustrates that um taking the examples from other contexts helps us sometimes understand the theories better. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. And uh, you'd originally uh, suggested the article to me as a good one to to attack. What was the what was the big appeal for you that really struck home? Oh, I think it really is again, as I said, admiration for the group of trying to help us understand things that will help us not be so much driven by format in simulation, but by principles of practice. It made me think a little bit about uh, the simulation activity and the simulation team and the simulation process, design and delivery, as being an activity system that is in parallel with the activity system that is the participants coming and actually partaking of the simulation. And in fact, these two activity systems are linked by the shared object, which is, you know, we did a range of simulations today, but one of them was trying to be uh, excellent care for the major trauma patient who is in their third trimester of pregnancy. And so that's a shared object. And we had to do all kinds of things involving people and equipment and scenario design that was our activity system in order to create one uh, that then the participants could engage with and do the things that they wanted to do, again, also in pursuit of this. So it makes me move from just thinking about sim as replication. I um, I really like how you've explained that, Vic, because that's one thing that I liked about this paper. I felt like it almost, it will help people recognise that in situ sim in itself is a complex activity that we're taking into a complex system. And as uh, simulation facilitators and educators, it's important for us to think about the complexity when we're preparing in situ simulation um, and when we're delivering it, what goes into that system within the system we're delivering it, which is the healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we perhaps under focus on that and we just go, here's the tips for how to do it instead of understanding that it is its own uh, activity system. The the interesting thing for me looking at um, the the figure three in this paper, um, and probably because I'm focused a little bit on this for my research, but the thought about where the healthcare consumers may fit in this activity system. So are they the community? Do they become the subject? Where do they fit in that? That was one thing that I started thinking about when um, I was looking at figure three. Ben, thoughts on that? What will this do in terms of your simulation practice, do you think? Look, I, I'm going to own that I'm still struggling with this. So uh, the appeal to me of this paper and why, you know, I agreed with you that we should try it was for me that the appeal was acknowledging that there is more to this than just running an Insachi sim and saying, great, we've trained everybody up on what is reality. And it was starting to help give me a language at trying to understand what else is at play in uh, in terms of the barriers that stop us actually leading to good clinical outcomes for a patient and starting to learn a very different language that does not sit comfortably with me uh, about how to try and take a different analytical approach, particularly after reading that Petrosoniak paper and realising, you know, just how uh, how much there is uh, how much a longer a journey it is to actually get really good at this stuff. From a personal perspective, I would say that they really, this is complex, challenging stuff, and it doesn't read or translate easily for new learners at baseline because it is just 
very clever thoughts. And I think the article does struggle a bit under the weight of that. And it takes about half of the article to start defining what chat is. It's almost like I think there's so many concepts it's trying to just gently scaffold on first to define and try and help us build up to this cognitive final leap. And I did feel that after sort of defining what the theory is, it sort of pulls back a little bit and doesn't offer the concrete steps or breakdown I needed to be able to enact this theory in practice. And I think for a meta level, this was reflected by the lack of comments this month. So I think uh, that was also influenced by, I, w- I was just really busy this month and didn't promote it enough, but um, I am th- sure there are some people who started and then went, well, this is too hard. Um, so I salute in particular Dan Houghton, who is man of the hour uh, and only person to post this month. Uh, is it all right if I maybe just touch on his comments at this point? In time? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. So he he writes that, look, as the authors point out, the participants in the simulation may struggle to cognitively hold the triangle models in their head whilst doing the activity, but they hypothesize that observers would be able to consider the key elements. And he says, I'm not sure how easy a task that might be for observers, and I found it a struggle to understand the meaning of the terms rules, community, subject, object, etc., and the interconnected triangles can be a bit baffling. So I can imagine watching a simulation where I'm asked to think about these key concepts and what applies where might be tricky. And I really think that's true. I think that you would have, a, have to have a big cultural shift uh, and a lot of translational work to for people to understand and jump on board with this, even though I think it would be really cool once you got there. Um, he says that inside you sim with the whole slash real team is going to be key to understanding the work is done and the teams have the keys to improving that system. But my concern would be that introducing new concepts, terms and diagrams in the pre-brief may risk losing the common language and open communication you are looking for. And it would potentially need a careful introduction or groundwork. Uh, and yeah, I would agree with that. And I think one of the one of the simple but more challenging things about this is because this is in some ways a very old theory that's evolved over time is some of the terminology is used in colloquialisms for other parts of the healthcare system. So suddenly the object is not the objects that we interact with to resuscitate a patient, but it's the patient themselves or the objective of the, the situation. And so there's a blur between words as I understand them and then new context for those words and then being used sometimes in both contexts within an explanation of that theory. It's re- it's uh, tricky stuff. Yeah, I think it's a little while before we move from trying this on with simulation faculty to trying it on with simulation learners and I couldn't see myself drawing a triangle in a debrief. I, I agree and I agree, agree with those comments that you shared, Ben. I think that um, I wouldn't introduce uh, the triangle in a pre-brief or debrief, but where I see it helpful is just me as an educator thinking about the complex systems to help guide my practice in preparing a sim and debriefing a sim. I'm not sure if I would um, particularly use it as a graphic or help um, with the debriefing. It just might help me think differently. You're listening to Simulcast. So, of course, we were a little worried we hadn't quite done this erudite article justice with our discussion. So, uh, with those cold feet, I bravely approached Jerry Gormley and asked him to record a little bit of audio to tell us 
his perspective on the article, and maybe even his thoughts about our thoughts. So here's Jerry. Hi, Vic and all. Many thanks uh, for making our article the focus of this edition of Simulcast. We're all big fans uh, over here. It was really interesting to hear your discussions and comments about our paper that was published in Advances in Simulation. And when we set out to write this paper, this article, we really wanted to position and indeed debate about widening the use of theory in simulation-related practice, in this instance, activity theory. We're only too well aware that many have called for the greater use of theory in our field and the potential benefits that it uh, could confer in our practice. Going beyond our local level practice, really theory helps us to take at that more meta level, uh, understanding some of the complexities uh, of what we do that hopefully will uh, provide um, a positive change and benefit for us uh, in the future as a collective. And look, we totally get that theory can be challenging. We've all been there. But, yeah, we do believe that it behoves us to to meet this challenge uh, for the benefit uh, of our field. If we look at other uh, arenas, such as primary education, secondary education, and actually increasingly in the wider arena of health profession education, there is not only greater uptake of theory to drive practice, uh, and indeed uh, our research, uh, but also including uh, activity theory. And there's been lovely, uh, really important articles produced in the last number of years uh, that have used activity theory to help us make sense uh, of uh, aspects of higher uh, health profession uh, education. And we know that simulation maybe has been a little bit of a late starter in the pickup of some aspects of theory, but I do believe that we are entering an exciting era as we further engage uh, with theory. Thinking about our paper, uh, we explored uh, complex situations. Human-based activities tend to be complex, particularly in clinical environments and indeed even simulated environments. Actions can often be unpredictable and often don't follow that nice linear pattern that you do see uh, on guidelines and algorithms. And we believe that this is where theory can really help us understand and hopefully make positive change. So just to round off, uh, we really appreciate your comments uh, about our paper. We're glad that it's created some uh, debate. More than advocating the direct use of activity theory straight into simulation practice, we argue, we debate, for the greater engagement um, of simulation with theory, in this instance, uh, activity theory, which may have the potential to further enhance uh, meaningful and cohesive organisational change brought about by in situ simulation. As we cited in our paper, uh, we call for more empirical research to explore the use uh, of activity theory in simulation. I'm aware of several groups who are working in that space, including ourselves, and I suspect we probably haven't heard the last of activity theory in simulation. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, well, maybe we have to go on to something much simpler like neonatal resuscitation. Are you okay, Ben? (laughs) (laughs) Just checking in. All right, well, let's move on to a couple of things that are probably more in our usual wheelhouse. So, simulcast listeners, you can get back into thinking about resuscitation and learners. So this is a paper called Relationship Between Self-Efficacy and Performance of Simulated Neonatal Chest Compressions and Ventilation, and this is by 
Donahue et al. And this is from Simulation in Healthcare just this month, December 2020. And the background to this is I would say it's quite frequent that people come to me and say, look, I'm doing some sims. I want to write it up. Uh, I want to prove that it's worked. So I'm going to do a survey and it's going to ask people how confident they are before the sim and then it's going to ask them how confident they are after the sim. And I say, don't do that. And they wonder why, because it seems to them that this is a good idea that we'll prove that sim works. Uh, Now, obviously, I've exaggerated there, but this article really takes us through why don't do that. Uh, It takes a little step back, and as the title said, it uses this word self-efficacy. So the background helps us understand what that is, and I'm going to quote from the paper. Uh, Self-efficacy is the strength of one's belief in one's ability to complete a particular task. And this is actually different from self-confidence, which is a kind of general idea about how good you are at things. So self-efficacy might be different between different tasks, but self-confidence is a more general concept. So I might be a self-confident person, but I might have pretty low self-efficacy in neonatal resuscitation because I haven't done that since I did neonates and pediatrics, which is a long time for me. And for those of you who are emboldened by our recent discussion of theory, if you want to jump into another one, uh, one you probably need to put on your list is social learning theory, and they describe that this is one of the elements of Bandura's social learning theory. And it says, well, what makes you have this feeling of self-efficacy? And it is based, unsurprisingly, on things like your prior performance outcomes. Have you done this well in the past? other experiences of watching other people do it, uh, maybe some general social persuasion and also your personal physiologic state. Sometimes we do feel more self-efficacious than others. But I guess the real question with this self-efficacy concept is, is it actually correlated with directly observed performance? And that was the question for this study. So what did they do? They did a observational cohort design study and they had 69 staff from the neonatal intensive care unit, most of whom were nurses, but they had a few doctors and nurse practitioners as well. And what they did was they said to these people, we're going to put you in a a neonatal resuscitation. You'll have to do compressions and ventilations. So first of all, how good do you think you're going to be at that? And they gave them this um, seven-item Likert scale, apparently a validated or accepted um, scale that people use when they're measuring self-efficacy. And then they actually got them all to do as an individual performance. So this wasn't a team-based scenario. This was just individuals doing one minute of chest compressions and one minute of ventilations on a mannequin, and then they actually measured that. The mannequin they were using had this thing called eCPR, which records the rate and depth of compressions as well as the percentage of effective compressions, and that was well-defined, and also recorded the rate, volume, duration, and percentage of effective ventilations. And then they kind of went, okay, so how well does this correlate? whether people thought they were any good versus whether the machine told us there were any good. Now, you two have read the paper, but what do you think they might find? Turns out that it doesn't really match. So you're right. There's no correlation between participant self-assessment and their ability to perform chest compressions uh, and nothing between their self-assessment of their ability or their actual ability to perform bag valve mask ventilations. So I suppose if we see data like this, we're kind of going, look, do people really have no insight or is this just a measurement artifact and we just haven't managed to capture either their real performance or their self-efficacy in a good way? So I just guess the first thing to say, is this fit with either of your prior experience? Ben, do you think people are any good at assessing their ability in this regard? Look, I, I feel torn 
because uh, I feel at once that it's utterly believable that we're terrible at assessing our performance, particularly with CPR. And certainly uh, I was reading sort of the Code ACES study recently and looking at, you know, when it comes to how well are we doing CPR in general, 30% or whatever without intervention. And and so I, I think this is very believable, but particularly for this school. I guess what it scares me about is little bit is, is where does that leave us when it comes to assessing the things that can't be measured by a, a computer um, in that there's another simulation in healthcare article about how ineffective um, observer assessment of uh, quality CPR is compared to um, compared to a machine as well. So it's essentially saying we can't assess ourselves. We can't assess other people. The machine can do it, but then there's a whole bunch of stuff that we we don't have such clear success criteria for. So the machines are taking over. <laughs> we know that. Well, for this, it sounds like they should, but like yeah, certainly when it comes to they can't. Certainly when it, certainly when it comes to assessing CPR, they've got they've got uh, good self efficacy. It does. It does make me. It reminds me of. I think it was a chapter in Thinking Fast and Slow, where they looked at. Uh, people who are giving um, financial stock exchange advice versus people who are getting uh, experience that gave you immediate feedback on whether your performance was good or not. And I guess one of the challenges with uh, CPR is you're not necessarily getting accurate feedback on your performance in the moment. And so it doesn't surprise me potentially that Steph's sort of saying, look, but things that I practice regularly are also probably more things that she's getting more feedback on whether she's achieved success criteria. And so I know they looked at like firemen being good at running out of burning buildings were good if they'd been in lots of burning buildings before and had recognized, you know, that had accurate feedback on whether their movements avoided danger or not, right? Whereas if you're a stock person... Yeah, but like if you're a stock exchange guy who's just passing out financial advice and making money and not necessarily getting immediate feedback on that decision, your perception of good decision making wasn't really any more accurate at an, as a what is it at a um, systems one sort of point of view. You haven't improved that type of thinking at all. And so I wonder whether the challenge here is to work out how can we accurately give realistic feedback to ourselves to help us get better and not just rely on an objective, sorry, subjective uh, self-assessment that clearly can't be done um, on its own. Mm. So it's kind of interesting what you say, and I'm glad you're here, Steph, just to enjoy the analogies Dr. Simon gives me in these simulcast episodes. <laughs> uh, burning buildings, you see, where was that coming from? For my money, the real thing here is, and this is a quote from the paper, self-efficacy is easy to measure and is often measured before and after an intervention as an assessment of improvement in performance. And I think the answer here is it shouldn't be because it's probably not a great guide to be the proof that this intervention works. And unfortunately, we do have to look for more nuanced and um, multifaceted ways of trying to demonstrate the impact of an intervention. One thing that I did think was interesting was that 
although it didn't correlate with performance, it does have, and again, I quote, an important role in resuscitation because it seems like self-efficacious people, irrespective of their performance, is more likely to initiate things. So they're more likely to actually say, hey, let's start CPR because they think they're going to be pretty good at it. So they say, let's do it. So I think that's actually something I hadn't thought of before about the independent value of self-efficacy over and above the value of good performance. Clearly both are good, but um, we shouldn't just discount people with good self-efficacy and uncertain performance. So it tramples the imposter syndrome and gets things done. Yeah, yeah. as it turns out. I do think um, a good Simulcast 101 sort of micro episode would be Vic says don't do that and it's just a series of pitching research ideas that don't work and you can just say don't do that. that." (laughs) Only because I've done all these things myself and like come to a just a standstill and realised what how dumb it was. This is bitter experience, Ben. It's not me being an expert. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, I think we better move on. Uh, So our last paper. Exploring the construct of psychological safety in medical education. And this is by Sian Sui and a team. Uh, and this is actually published in Academic Medicine 2019, uh, July. It's only just come across my radar, which is why we're just doing it now rather than hot off the press. And it's kind of interesting because we talk a lot about psychological safety in simulation and we go to a lot of efforts to establish it and maintain it and our learners have picked up on the lingo about psychological safety and feeling safe. And this paper, though, sought to explore that a little bit more. So there's a variety of definitions, but if we go to the Amy Edmondson-style one, psychological safety is that feeling that it's okay to take an interpersonal risk in a group, and her original work was about that in a workplace but then extrapolating that to learning environments. And the authors sort of start the conversation by saying that psychological safety in medical education is often defined by its absence. And really we talk about how there's a lack of psychological safety when we're talking about mistreatment of learners through a variety of uh, ways. But they make the point that just if just by removing the negative, i.e. taking out people who are mistreating learners, we don't necessarily create the positive of psychological safety. So they said, mm, let's try and... Um, understand a little more the learner's concept of psychological safety in medical education. So how did they do that? They embedded this within a uh, learning environment that was a, and I'm going to quote, peer mentorship in medical education program. So from what I could tell, this was a uh, learning program which paired up some junior, relatively junior doctors with medical students and they went through a curriculum of case-based learning and uh, other things where they sort of talked about how do you get on, how do you learn about stuff, but the teachers were definitely near peers. And so from within this program, they pulled out eight of the medical students and they did some semi-structured interviews with them and asked them questions like, uh, how did this uh, feeling of psychological safety affect your learning? Can you tell when there's times that a learning environment is safe or not? And then they analysed that data and generated some themes. So, and again, from uh, certainly no expert on qualitative research, but they describe how they did this in a pretty clear way that I think we can understand. So when they reported their results, there was a sort of overwhelming uh, 
outcome which came when it came down to what are the constituents of psychological safety and that was an absence of the need to constantly self-monitor which I thought was pretty interesting and that that was then further sort of subdivided into sort of three sets of factors one was institutional factors so a lack of formal assessment and specific learning objectives and a sort of informal feeling uh, made people feel more psychological safe interpersonal factors to feel understood and cared for as a person, which probably happened quite a lot when they were in these near-peer environments, didn't feel constantly judged, and then intrapersonal factors. So um, this is more sort of personal. How much time did they have to spend doing what the authors call social positioning or having to project an image of competency? And I thought that probably wasn't completely new, but it was a nice way of kind of thinking about it. Ben, what did you think about the constituents of psychological safety? Look, I thought they were nice and I liked the findings. I didn't find them sort of super revolutionary or that they, I thought they provided an eloquent summary of some of the underlying principles. I don't think they, it didn't particularly sort of challenge my preconceptions of where psychological safety comes from. I, the most interesting thing for me was actually that I kind of disagreed with their underlying sort of lit review or their underlying hypothesis that most medical education literature has reported psychological safety through reporting on unsafe environments and characterised by social, verbal, physical and sexual mistreatment. And they quote in the references there seven papers. And I went and looked at the titles of them all and it's all pretty depressing stuff on the sexual mistreatment of med students and uh, verbal harassment and derogatory stuff. Um, And I was a little surprised because I think coming from a simulation literature uh, entry point, that wasn't my experience of what the majority of literature was. So I felt there was a very specific lens and a bit of overreach on what the medical education literature was. Well, you could think about it the other way, and that is that you've had a very specific lens in simulation, which I think you're right, there's lots of attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think, that is definitely true, but I, I think it wasn't so much a lit review, but then it was a strong claim, I guess. And then um, what I, because for me, certainly, I think in sim literature, we're probably not so much focusing on the negative, but we're very behaviorist about the positive, And we've wrapped this as there is a recipe to achieve psychological safety if you do this, 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 and this a lot of the time, or at least I think that's people's take home from some papers. So it was interesting, an interesting new perspective that provided some nice, rich nuance like a good qualitative article does. Yeah. Well, they went on then to talk about the consequences of safe versus unsafe as, um, you know, described by these learners. And they sort of said the learners, the theme that sort of came out was that there was a reticence to engage with the learning until they could understand the consequences of their actions so that they would take more learning risks. And, again, this is something that's kind of been drummed into us if they knew that there was sort of a a net there that uh, caught them rather than exposed them. And then they go on to sort of in their discussion talk about how they don't really like the term and they'd rather call it educational safety. Um, And I really, this is where I started to have a few little alarm bells ringing because they defined that as a subjective state of feeling freed from a sense of judgment by others. And I started to think, hang on, is this safe or is this soft? 
yeah, these people, they might be all feeling very safe now, but are they actually learning anything? Well, there's just a bunch of interns teaching some medical students how to feel good. Go, Ben. 100%. And can I also, uh, some of the sort of quotes to me suggested that it wasn't that they had got to a place where they felt comfortable taking risk. It was just that they knew what the risks were and so they could avoid the ones they didn't want to take and so they felt comfortable. I know, and maybe that is not necessarily our aim. What do you think, Steph? And, uh, you know, this is a medical education paper, but I'm sure it's similar across the interprofessional context that you work in. Yeah, well, I, I agree with everything you're both saying. In fact, I found myself questioning what I'd known about psychological safety and safe learning environments um, reading this paper, uh, you know, from the simulation world psychological safe learning environments are safe but challenging so they still want us to perform on the edge of our comfort zone but we do that or we provide a space where people can make mistakes to learn from them and I felt in this instance that wasn't necessarily the aim. Yeah I know to sort of go that there's no consequences of your actions suggests you're not going to learn very fast. That's what I was questioning. I was kind of questioning well what is the learning here and in the study have they actually assessed how much people have learned? I think they just measured their self-efficacy. I also felt uh, I (laughs) (laughs) I also felt that the term education safety wasn't something that I would be adopting because for me, particularly in what we're understanding now about SIM in terms of how it can build, um, you know, cultures and relationships between groups of people, particularly with the work you're doing, Vic, is that if we only think about psychological safety in in terms of educational safety, then we don't think about that when we're running simulations outside of the educational context. So that was one kind of issue I took with the renaming of that term. Yeah, I know. It actually worries me a lot because we're busy doing this project at the moment looking at the bi-directional relationship between psychological safety in the workplace and then when those work teams come to do SIM, how does that relate to their psychological safety in simulation and vice versa? And you're right, I, f- I feel like this just moves education further away from the work that we're trying to prepare people for. Yeah, so it's clearly a bit of a fine line, this uh, concept of psychological safety and how it applies in education. Uh, the paper did go on to talk about some things that I, you know, I found a little stretch to connect to it, like flow states and attachment theory, but that might just be me. Well, and- uh, hmm. Go, Ben. Oh, I did. and Yeah, I, I think the attachment theory bit lost me in that that, again, started pointing towards infantilization over um, fostering independence and risk-taking. Yes, exactly, said as someone who actually knows something about childhood development. (laughs) (laughs) I do love attachment theory. It makes perfect sense. But I think the whole point is that attachment theory is supposed to be when you're young and you get secure and then you can be independent because you have a secure sense of self, not because you keep needing to be nurtured 20 years down the track yeah well and and i don't think that builds resilience in um our adult professionals um that yes (laughs) 
All right. So I think read this paper because it sort of makes you think. And I think what uh, Steph said is actually important. It makes you question what you understand about psychological safety. You may come back to what you thought, but you may also just think a little bit about whether you should have any learning objectives for your simulations or not, uh, because certainly this would suggest you shouldn't. But um, I'm going to stick to mine, albeit not be tied to a particular performance. All right, well, that's it, and we're going to have a little rest from uh, General Club for a month or two, Ben. Uh, can I ask you both any kind of Christmas, happy holiday type wishes for anyone? We'll get to New Year's resolutions next year. Well, well, I think a lot of our simulation friends are going through a pretty tough time internationally, um, being exposed to a fair amount of uh, stress and disease that, is pretty outside the normal range and that they've been dealing with for a while. So I certainly wish them all the best. Yes, we hope people do get at least some little holiday and or time with loved ones. Yes, Steph, it's been lovely to have you along for Simulcast Journal Club this month. Thanks for inviting uh, me. Hope, hope you have a nice uh, chance for a break as well. Will do. All right, this is Steph Barwick, Ben Simon and Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.